With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Thailand's recent swings between military coups and leadership by one storied populist family look set to continue in this weekend's election. But it isn't clear the will of the people will prevail, and emboldened voters might not take that sitting down. And what fits in a backpack can be set up in minutes and causes Russia's forces to squander missiles and ammunition in Ukraine. Tanks. Not real tanks inflatable ones. First up, though. Ms. Carroll, can we have a statement, please? Roberta, can we please have a statement? We've been here the whole time. We covered the trial. Just one statement. It's the first major legal judgment against former President Donald Trump. E. Jean Carroll, a magazine journalist, had brought a civil case employing a law she helped to bring about against Mr. Trump, accusing him of rape in the 1990s. A jury unanimously agreed yesterday that he was liable for the lesser charge of sexual assault. They also agreed that he defamed Ms. Carroll for having called her a liar and worse in bringing the allegations. Mr. Trump continues to fume, to deny, to distract, and through his lawyer, to fight on. Yeah, I think it's a, an inconsistent yeah. verdict, right? And um, it's something that obviously will be another issue for appeal. But the issue for the appeals were late, really, months ago, when, when things like, you know, Donald Trump's... Ms. Carroll's partial victory may yet empower more of Mr. Trump's accusers. And it's going to cost him, at least financially. All told, the jury awarded her about $5 million. Whether his repugnant behavior will cost him politically is, as ever, an open question. This case is a civil case rather than a criminal case, so the standard of proof required is different. However, this is the first big legal judgment against Donald Trump, and that's significant in itself. John Priddo is our United States editor and co-host of Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics. He has tried to dismiss the verdict, but there's no escaping the fact that a jury has unanimously found that Donald Trump did something wrong and he's been found liable for it and he's going to have to pay. And just give us a little bit of background on, on the accusations on the case itself. Yes. So this assault happened at Bergdorf Goodman, a popular department store then in the mid-90s. At that time, Donald Trump was a very well-known real estate developer in New York, perhaps best known for his antics in the tabloids than for building buildings, but even so, a high-profile figure. E. Jean Carroll was a popular advice columnist, so a pretty well-known writer. 
she told a couple of her friends about the assault after it had happened, but she didn't go to the police. And that was something that Donald Trump's defense lawyer pushed on a lot. And E. Jean Carroll said that this incident cast a shadow over the rest of her life. She wrote about it in a memoir, which she published in 2019. Donald Trump called her a liar on social media. He said that her accusations were a hoax and he called her a con job. That gave her standing to sue him for defamation, which was part of this case, to clear her name. And that was clearly an important thing for her. But also, New York now has a law that allows people to bring historic accusations of sexual abuse. Most of these accusations concern cases against institutions like the Catholic Church. But the law has also been used to bring what you might call more classic sort of he said, she said, sexual assault allegations of this type. And so that's why Eugene Carroll was able to bring both a defamation claim and a sexual assault claim for something that happened 25 years ago. And it has to be said that, that claims of sexual assault, uh, you, you mentioned this, the he said, she said idea, these are depressingly hard to prove in court. How did this one play out? They are hard to prove because typically there are no witnesses, as was the case here. There's seldom forensic evidence, as was the case here. It's important to underline that this was a civil case. In a civil case, the jury has to decide that the preponderance of evidence suggests liability. That really means that it's more likely than not that Donald Trump committed this assault. In a criminal case, the standard's different. It's beyond reasonable doubt. That's clearly a higher bar. It's also important to note that while Trump has been found liable for defamation and for sexual battery, the jury decided that the evidence didn't rise to the level of proving Mr. Trump was liable for rape. So that's something that he will presumably cling on to. So though these cases are really hard to prove, E. Jean Carroll's testimony was clearly very credible and persuasive for the jurors. Her lawyers had several witnesses and they were able to build a pattern of past behaviour by Donald Trump. They used the infamous Access Hollywood tape, which first became public just before the election in 2016. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. In all, Donald Trump has been accused of sexual assault, I think, by 17 women. And so the lawyers for E. Jean Carroll were able to establish a sort of pattern of past behaviour and persuade the jury that what he did to E. Jean Carroll fitted into that pattern. The other thing that I think was relevant here was that Donald Trump had to sit through a witness deposition. He didn't appear in court, but he was deposed by E. Jean Carroll's lawyers and he made life, frankly, easier for them than it perhaps could have been. I mean, he repeated his line that E. Jean Carroll wasn't his type, said he never knew her, had no idea who she was, then confused her with a picture of his former wife. He also said that E. Jean Carroll's lawyer wasn't his type. And so that, I think, was not particularly helpful for his own legal defense. And presumably, Mr. Trump continues to deny the allegations in spite of this ruling. Yes, he does. His strategy here was to try and ignore the trial in the sense that he refused to show up as a witness while writing about it a fair bit on social media, 
which is something that the judge reprimanded him for several times. After the verdict came in, he said he'd appeal. He said that he said the Democrats had weaponized the American judicial system against him. And he repeated the thing he's been saying all along, which is he doesn't know who Eugene Carroll is. We'll be appealing this decision. It's a disgrace. I don't even know who this woman is. I have no idea who she is, where she came from. This is another scam. It's a political witch hunt. Mr. Trump's supposed to be doing a town hall on CNN tonight, so we'll see if that goes ahead. No doubt he'll be asked about this. His lawyers said after the verdict that the jury not finding him liable for rape was gratifying, and they also added that a fair trial wasn't possible in New York. And you said that there are plenty more women, 17, who have alleged that Mr. Trump has engaged in this kind of behavior with them and that the New York law is open until November for these kinds of cases. Do you think this is the thin end of the wedge here? Will there be more cases of this sort forthcoming? I think if you're a lawyer for one of the other 17 women who has accused Donald Trump of sexual assault, then you would look at this case and think, we've got a real chance here. I think there's another factor, which is if other accusers do bring lawsuits against Donald Trump in New York, then will Mr. Trump be able to refrain from attacking his accusers in the way he went after E. Jean Carroll? Because that clearly made her case a lot stronger. It It would be out of character for him just to sit silently and not say anything. But that's one of the things I'll be looking for as more lawyers file cases on behalf of those accusers. And thinking just about this case alone, what effects do you think it will have? Will it roll off like so many judgments and and issues against him have before? There are several ways to look at that question, Jason. I think the first one is how will it play among Republican primary voters? And the rule there for as long as Donald Trump has been atop the Republican Party, so for a long time now, has been, of course, that primary voters, Republican primary voters are remarkably forgiving of him, or perhaps put another way, remarkably willing to disbelieve accusations against him. It cannot be the case that having been found liable for sexual assault would help him in a general election. I don't think this would be decisive in any way, but it's certainly not helpful. That said, a Republican primary is not the same as a general election. Donald Trump currently does look favourite to be the Republican presidential nominee yet again. And the first primary debate, sorry to make your heart sink, is not that far away now. Other Republican candidates have a few options. They can try and say nothing, which has been the approach so far of Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader. They can defend Donald Trump which is the full MAGA option, say it's a witch hunt, a false accusation. They can try and obfuscate a bit while defending Mr. Trump, as Mike Pence, Donald Trump's former vice president, did on NBC last night. It's just one more story uh, focusing on my former running mate that I know is a great fascination to members of the national media, but I just just don't think it's where the American people are focused. They can criticise Donald Trump without criticising him explicitly. So Senator John Thune, South Dakota, said that people are going to have to decide if they want to deal with all the drama around Donald Trump, as if the drama doesn't have much to do with him. It's just like sort of he's followed around by by bad weather. Or they can take the other option, which is to confront Donald Trump directly. And so far, one of the few candidates who's declared for the presidency to do that is Asa Hutchinson, who's a former governor of Arkansas. 
And he said that the jury verdict should be treated with seriousness and is another example of the indefensible behavior of Donald Trump. So there are at least three or four different ways in which people in the Republican Party, people seeking office in the Republican Party can deal with this accusation. That's going to be the next thing to watch. But as regards cases of sexual assault, this is about as high profile as they come. Do you think there are onward effects from this judgment? I think so, yes. I think it's important to say this isn't all about politics. I think one of the significant barriers to such accusations has always been a fear that men and women making those accusations won't be believed. And the fact that a jury has believed E. Jean Carroll presumably will have a motivating effect for other women in states that have look-back laws of the type that New York has. But I would add just as a cautionary note, having edited lots of stories about Me Too in America, is there is a cycle whereby people come forward and then quite often Americans feel that this has gone too far and there's a bit of a backlash against the accusers. So I don't think this is going to make life easy for women coming forward with historic accusations. It's a very hard thing to do but I think it will embolden some of them to do so. So that's a significant effect aside from the politics of all this. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise, where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Thailand has a history of oscillating between periods of vibrant electoral democracy and repeated coups. There have been rumours of a coup for weeks. Now to some breaking news. Thailand's military chief says the army is taking control of the government. Now Thailand's military has announced a coup d'etat just two days after insisting one wasn't underway. Global leaders have been quick to... There have been a dozen army coups since the replacement of its absolute monarchy with a supposedly more restrained king in 1932. Economically, the country is also on shaky ground. Su Lin Wong is a Southeast Asia correspondent at The Economist. Thailand's recovery from COVID has been the slowest in Southeast Asia, and over the past decade, it has attracted less investment than its competitors in the region, including Vietnam and Indonesia. Many Thais feel like their country, which was once considered a regional leader, is falling behind. But on May 14th, voters will go to the polls in a general election and they will get the opportunity to express just how they feel about the direction their country is heading in. And so who are the the candidates running in this race? Thailand's current prime minister, Prayuth Chan-o-Chan, is running with a new conservative party. Mr. Prayuth seized power in a military coup in 2014, and he promised to make the economy more vibrant. But instead, his leadership has been defined by incompetence and corruption. 
He's currently in third position, according to recent polls, and the top two contenders are of the democracy camp. The first is Pai Tong Tan Shinawat, the leader of the main opposition party, Pertai. And what's very important to note is that Miss Pai Tong Tan is the daughter of Tutsin Shinawat, a tycoon turned prime minister who was ousted in a military coup in 2006, but actually has been incredibly involved in Thai politics for the past 20 years. And another very popular candidate is from the Move Forward Party, currently led by a Harvard graduate called Pitta Limjararanrat. Okay, so uh, an, an old-ish opposition party and uh, a fairly newish one. What do they both stand for? Well, Pertai has existed under different names, and it was previously known as the People's Power Party, and they're really known for their populist economic policies. Interestingly, it was Mr. Tuxin who first introduced these populist economic policies back in 2001, and since then, all the political parties across the political spectrum, whether they're from the army establishment or they're more from the pro-democracy camp, like Pertai, now run on these populist platforms. What's really important to note is that parties linked to the Shinawat family have won every Thai election since 2001. Move Forward is the second largest opposition party, and it was founded as Future Forward by young progressive Thais in 2018. Its leaders have been incredibly charismatic, and they're very, very popular with young Thais. I actually went to a Move Forward rally recently in Bangkok. The rally was by a river that runs through Bangkok, and there were a couple of hundred supporters in bright orange T-shirts. There was a lot of loud pop music and there was a real energy in the air. I later interviewed Pitta Limjararunrat, the leader of Move Forward. He told me all about his party's strategy. In short, it's 3Ds is what we're proposing and what uh, differentiates us from other parties. 3Ds is as follows. First is to demilitarize Thailand, that's military conscription. Second is demonopolization, that's liquor, liberalization. And third D is decentralization, so to make sure that Bangkok is no longer Thailand and Thailand is no longer Bangkok. That sounded a little too rehearsed for me, so I asked him to go into more depth. If you have ever visited Thailand, you will understand that one size does not fit all. You know, if you're in Isan province, it's about land rights, it's about water management, it's about debt management of the farmers. If it's, you're from the northern part of Thailand, what keeps you awake at night is pollution, transboundary haze, you know, also something to do with land rights and deforestation. If you're from down south, you know, usually the most conservative part of Thailand, it's about tourism, you know, after COVID. It's about uh, rubber prices, palm oil prices, and uh, fishery, for example. So, you know, because uh, what's going on nowadays is so fragmented and the new challenges that come in, it keeps accumulating from the previous challenges, you know, arguably four years ago. So now people really want concise answers of how um, their problems will be resolved. Although Move Forward makes good case, the party is unlikely to beat Pertai, and it's predicted that Pai Tong Tan Shinawat's party is going to win the most seats. So quite probably another Shinawat in, in power then. She would become prime minister and, and form the next government. 
Well, in most countries, that would be the logical conclusion, but not in Thailand. So to win the prime ministership in Thailand, she will need the support of the Senate. And that's very, very important when thinking about Thai politics. So under the current constitution, which the military junta forced through in 2016, Thailand's Senate is packed with military loyalists and it has a huge say in the selection of the prime minister. So that means that pro-military candidates would need just 126 seats in the lower house to form a government. But opposition parties would need nearly three times as many seats. To make matters worse, under the current constitution, the country's constitutional court, electoral commission and anti-corruption commission are brimming with people appointed by and loyal to the military government. So what does that mean then for for Thai voters, for the will of the people? It means they may not get the change they want and Thailand will slip further into democratic decline and be a place where the military and the monarchy control even more of Thai society than they currently do. That having been said, things may get a little heated after the election. The country has a long history of protests. And in 2020 and 2021, thousands of student protesters took to the streets, calling for Mr Prayuth's government to resign and for a form of the monarchy, which was previously a taboo topic in Thailand, where denigrating the king could lead to a prison sentence of up to 15 years. Then the government retaliated, charging at least 240 people, and that really put a dampener on the protests because there was a lot of fear after that, given how severe the punishments could be. And what's really interesting is that many of the student protesters who took to the streets in 2020 and 2021 have now decided that to make change, it's more effective for them to work in politics. And a lot of them have joined Move Forward. Some of them are running as candidates in the upcoming election. And what is notable is that Move Forward is really advocating for systemic change in Thailand. And it's the only political party that has come out and publicly said that it wants to amend the law that criminalises criticism of the monarchy. But as you've said, the, the rule by either the military or the monarchy or both is, is pretty well entrenched. The, 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 there's a thumb on the scales there. How likely do you think that change is? Unfortunately, I think it's pretty unlikely to happen anytime soon. And rumours are currently swirling that having failed to win the prime ministership twice before, Per Thai is now in conversation with the establishment over a power sharing agreement. Now, Per Thai has come out and denied this, but there's still a lot of speculation in Thailand that this might be how it pans out. This may sit more comfortably with the military and the monarchy who want a prime minister that does their bidding. The problem is, it may not sit so well with the people of Thailand. Thanks very much for joining us, Sulin. Thanks very much, Jason. We're always trying to improve our podcasts and we'd like your help. Whether you're a loyal fan or a new listener, we want to hear from you. Do us a big favor and tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes. Just head to economist.com slash intelligence survey.
Deception in war is as old as war itself. Think of the Greeks' use of the Trojan horse. Or Rupert's. They were sackcloth paratroopers dropped to confuse the Germans on D-Day. Deceive your enemy, then as now, and you gain a valuable advantage. And as weapons technologies evolve, so too must the cunning tricks. So it shouldn't surprise us that deception is being used in the Ukrainian-Russian war. Wendell Stevenson writes about the war in Ukraine for The Economist. This is a war that's been particularly characterized by the different ways drones are able to be deployed in particular. So the battlefields are increasingly visible to each side. And in this case, dummies and deception have an even greater role to play. So when you say the deception has had to to move with the times, what do you mean? Well, the Ukrainians have been fighting this war since 2014, and they've been using rather ad hoc wooden models of sort of nailed together bits of scrap and so forth. But increasingly, they're able to use and design inflatable dummies, inflatable tanks and artillery pieces in the field. And this, this actually works, does it? Apparently, it works quite well. Inflatables are made out of nylons and silks. You can carry them with just one or two people, perhaps in a backpack. You unwrap it, you plug in an electric blower, and in 10 minutes, as one expert said to me, you have a tank. I mean, as an aside here, this does seem to tick a lot of boxes in terms of convenience and so on. How come this wasn't an idea before rather than nailing planks and scrap together? It has been an idea before. When I was talking to the experts who are involved in trying to convince the Ukrainian armed forces to use them more often, they were really excited about the sort of scale by which these could be deployed instead of just using them as a decoy or a deception in a particular operation to use them almost in every unit to confuse the enemy. Drones are used all the time, every day, and they were saying dummies should be too. So how are these things actually deployed? What does it look like, well, from the sky? Well, it looks, you know, when you're looking down on them, very lifelike, and it's hard to tell the difference, particularly if they've cleverly been deployed along with, for example, fake tank tracks in a muddy field or alongside other units. I talked to one expert who had been observing the deployment of a dummy in the field. And he said that where they can be most useful is in a sort of coordinated operation. And in this case, what the Ukrainians had done was set up a fake position with dummies by unjamming the drones in this area. They lured them in and were able to essentially create a feint with dummies that helped elsewhere on the battlefield. The Ukrainians were very clever last summer when they received the first HIMARS, the long-range artillery from the US, they deployed at the same time wooden models of HIMARS trundling around the back. And the Russians were very pleased to announce their success in targeting and hitting these HIMARS. But it turned out that most of them, or all of them, according to the Ukrainians, they'd actually hit the dummies. So they can be used in a number of different ways, but increasingly they're hoping to figure out how to use them and deploying them in more sophisticated operations. And we've been talking a lot on the show about an expected counteroffensive this spring. Presumably that this kind of deception is going to form part of that. Well, everybody's talking about the counter- counteroffensive and everybody's waiting for it. The dummies are particularly effective, I think, or could be at countering the menace of the Russian Lancet drones, which have been really taking out a lot of the Ukrainian field artillery. But in addition, there's an economic aspect because, you know, an artillery piece, an expensive American howitzer, can, for example, can cost you know up to $4 million. 
And at the same time, you're encouraging Russia to expend their shells and ammunition and in some cases, missiles, which really do cost a lot of money on something that that is fake, that doesn't exist. Wendell, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. This week's episode of Babbage, our sister show on science and technology, will be looking into the use of drones in the war in Ukraine. Babbage is available later today and every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in with our current deal, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.